we are in Daniel, um, Daniel chapter two, and it is a it is a big chapter, and there's a lot of lot of stuff going on. So um, instead of reading the whole part during the corporate reading, I'm just going to read one little section, probably the center of the chapter, maybe the center piece of the book in some ways. On the video, chapter 7 really is. But this particular part really um, shows tons of the themes that run throughout the book of Daniel. Is, is Daniel's prayer in, in Daniel 2. So if you have a Bible and, you, and you're able, stand with me. We're going to read Daniel's prayer uh, as our <clears throat> corporate reading time before we go into uh, study in chapter 2. So go to verse 20. Um, and I'm going to read 20 down to 23. And I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Lord, <clears throat> I pray that you would help us this morning as we uh, seek to understand your word, and that you would, um, above anything and above everything, point our minds to Christ. And as we think on Christ, we would think on his everlasting kingdom. And that he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, the God of gods. And that our minds um, and hearts would be filled with affection for Jesus. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going into chapter 2. Um, and I think I left the chiastic structure. Did I leave that in the intro in the chiastic structure up there? I can't remember if I left it. Okay. Well, uh, chapter 2 through 7 uh, begins what we're going to see really at 2-4. And it actually indicates in the text. And he said to him in Aramaic. And two, chapter 2 through chapter 7 is where it switches from Hebrew into Aramaic. And then it's after chapter 7 it switches back to Hebrew. But 2 through 7 is written in Aramaic. And, and it follows what is a chiastic structure. Uh, as Chris has said, it's kind of like a mountaintop. So you've got 2 and 7. It's like the, and, you know, in math when you had A and A prime. And they're kind of the same. And you get B and B prime and C and C prime. That's what we're doing here, or Daniel's doing here. Chapter 2 and chapter 7, they're almost identical when you look at them. They're very similar. And then uh, 3 and 6 are very similar. And 4 and 5. And 4 and 5 kind of in this um, chiastic structure of 2 through 7 really get to the point that Christ is, is the ruler and reigner of all things. Um, but we're in chapter 2, and it's really going to, in a lot of ways, mimic chapter 7. Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He's going to have a dream, and he wants to know what's going on. And so uh, I want to get into some um, opening comments before I go through the, the entire chapter. And we're just going to take it section by section. There's really kind of like five acts, uh, five different scenes, and we're just going to take each scene. But they're separated by big theological statements. So let me just make some opening comments about what's going on in Babylon in chapter 2, and then we'll take section by section. First, the environment of Babylon. Uh, none of us grew up in Babylon, so we don't know what it's like. Uh, sometimes people say America's Babylon. It's immoral, no doubt, but it's not Babylon. So in Babylon, it was a place of massive fear, helplessness, and brutality. Uh, and we'll see quickly, even in verse 5, quickly, that the king says, if people can't interpret it my dream, I'm going to tear them limb from limb. 
No one talks like that in America whenever they're a congressman. If I don't get what I want, I'm going to tear them limb from limb. No one talks like that. Uh, and, but we, this is how he speaks. And so it was a brutal time, and it was very dark in Babylon. The next thing, the prayer that we just read uh, in Daniel, while prayer is essential— and I could take a big excursion and do a whole sermon on prayer. Um, prayer is not the overall focus of the chapter two. And so expository preaching is what's the point of the text? What's the point of the chapter? And let's stay there. So when we see the prayer, we could go into a long thing about prayer. Um, and we have done that many, many times. But that's not the point of, of chapter two. And while chapter two's prayer in 20 through 23 is the theological center of Daniel. It's not the fact that he prayed, which is the point. Instead, it's the content of the prayer that's the most important, and it's about God. And so the point of the chapter is God. And so as we go through this, I have five things that I want you to see about God uh, in chapter two. Um, When we get to the statue, you're you're either familiar with chapter two, and you know about the statue, and you're like, where's America? Uh, (laughs) Or you're totally unfamiliar with the statue uh, in chapter two. We'll get to that. That's verse 33, 31 through 33. And even after that, um, I, I actually have something that makes it easy for you to see. But the overall point of chapter two is not really even the statue either, um, or the kingdoms that defeat each other and where America falls in the statue, that's not really the point. Again, the point of chapter two is God. And so I want to point you to God throughout the entire th- time. The stone that dis- destroys the statue, which you see, we'll see in 34 and 35, this is key because the stone is Jesus. And so uh, the point of every Old Testament passage, you should be saying, where's Jesus? The point of every New Testament, you should say, where's the gospel of Jesus? The stone that destroys the statue is huge, and we will spend some time on that because it's about Jesus. Um, now, each, there's five sections in chapter 2, and each one of these sections, as you get towards the end of each section, um, will have kind of this loaded theological statement um, the, the first one in verse 11 is about a pagan god, the other... And, Throughout the rest of the other four are about actually God. Now, those four, those five kind of loaded theological statements for me serve as the five different sections. Now, verse 11, the first one, I'm just going to turn it so you see that it's actually about God. The other four, they're about God, and that makes up what will be our five different sections that we're looking here um, in the narrative. But I said, the goal in the sermon is not to so much focus on us or application or the statue or the fact that Daniel prayed. Uh, the main point about chapter 2 is God. That's what it is. And so I want to, with, with you, look at God. And as we just see the greatness of God and who he is, we just find ourselves in awe of God and let the application chips fall where they may. Um, because the Lord will do with what he'll do in our hearts as we look at the greatness and grandeur of who God is. So uh, I'm going I'm to read each section by section so we can know kind of what's going on. But we're looking at Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the living stone. Verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, so he's very, very new in his reign, second year, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and it slept Sleep left him. The king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, uh, they'll just be called shorthand uh, in the next section, wise men. But magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the king said, I had to be summoned to tell him the king's dreams. So they came to him and stood before the king. And the king said, I had a dream. 
and my spirit's troubled. Yeah, I have insomnia. I can't even sleep anymore. Tell me what my dreams are, uh, mean. Uh, the rest of Daniel in Aramaic until we get to 728 said to him in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. In other words, you tell us the dream. We'll give you what it means, but we want to know the dream first. Uh, the king answered to the Chaldeans, the word is for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your house should be laid in ruins. He's like, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You're going to tell me the dream that I had and the interpretation. I want you to tell me both. Not very, very kind. Um, not very fair. Uh, so, but, and if you don't, I'm going to tear all your arms off and destroy your house. Verse 6. But... If you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Uh, Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time and they said, let the king tell the servants the dream and then we can tell the interpretation. And the king's getting a little frustrated here. He answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to just gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying, corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can tell me the interpretation. In other words, you tell me the dream, I know you, I know you got it. The Chaldeans answered the king, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing, or a magician, or an enchanter, or a Chaldean. No king's ever asked when he had dreams to, to know the dream and the interpretation. He just wants to know the interpretation. Remember like Joseph? He, he tells Joseph the, the, the dream, and Joseph gives the interpretation, and that's just how it's kind of gone. You want both, not so fair. Loaded theological statement, verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and... No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with, with flesh. Well, not true, but God can. Verse 12, because, this is, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men, that's, that's that list that we saw in the earlier text, all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out. And the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions um, to kill them. All right, stop. So that's, first, that's the first section. So what we're going to see here is this. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in the dream, it, he, he's demanding to know what's going on. Now, what I'm going to do in these, in these five things, because it's largely about God, I'm going to juxtapose Nebuchadnezzar to God. And I, you're going to see how Nebuchadnezzar matches up to God. And as we see that, we're going to see how awesome God is and just, you know, how wretched he is. All right? So, number one. Number one. Here it is. Nebuchadnezzar demands to know versus, I'm calling it the living stone, and we're going to get to that why. Uh, it's about Jesus. He's, he's, going to, he's going to come up here. Living stone represents God. Nebuchadnezzar demands to know. He needs to know what it is versus the fact that the living stone or God is omniscient. And you see this in verse 11. See what it says in verse 11? No one can show it to the king except the gods. Well, that's not true. No one can show it to the king except for God. God is omniscient. Jesus Christ, the living stone, he's omniscient. He knows everything. Nebuchadnezzar is demanding to know. And when you compare the two, you've got God who knows everything versus Nebuchadnezzar who just needs to know. He just needs to know what's going on. And so Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. I'm going to walk you through the theological points 
pretty fast here, and then we'll do each section in, in a similar fashion. So he has these dreams. Now, Sinclair Ferguson points out something pretty interesting, right? This is a pagan king receiving some kind of dream, which is a, in a form a, a revelation from the Lord. And he says, all of our instincts would tend to insist that God would give revelation only through holy men. And God demonstrates, however, his ability to establish his purposes by whatever means he pleases. It doesn't have to be through holy men. He can do it through Nebuchadnezzar if he wants. And so he's bothered. He he's ha- has insomnia. It's the sleep has left him and he needs to know he's very troubled. And then ironically in verse 4, whenever he calls the magicians enchanters, uh, the Chaldean said to the king, O king, live forever. Ironically, the first sentence of O king, live forever is actually a quite literal opposite of exactly what the dream is telling him. You are not going to live forever. You are going to be killed and taken over. And so um, he switches in verse 4 over to Aramaic, Daniel does as he's writing, all the way to 728. And Danny Aiken points this out. The reason why there's a switch in language from uh, Hebrew to Aramaic and then back to Hebrew later is God is intending to reveal to all of us his greatness to the Gentile nations. He has a missional impulse, God does, to reach the nations. And the switch from Hebrew, the language of Israel, the language of God's people to Aramaic, the pagan language, is intending to reveal to us that God also has a heart for the nations. And so unlike Joseph, the king wants to know not just the interpretation. Let me tell you my dream, you interpret. The king wants to know the dream and the interpretation. And that's because he wants to know the guy's for real. He wants to know these people are totally for real. And so he says... Uh, tell me both. And they say, well, no one can do that. No king's ever asked that. Well, if you know God, God can do that, right? And we'll see in just a second that that's what's going to happen. And we have this major statement that no one can do this except, well, he says God's, but actually the truth is that no one can do this except for God. This is a theological statement, even though it's about a perverted, uh, a perverted uh, pagan God. Uh, it's actually true when you speak of God. Um, there is no knowledge that God keeps from himself. He's totally omniscient. He knows everything at all times. False teachers, even recently over the last 20, 30 years, have, been risen, have raised themselves up claiming that God actually compels himself to not know everything. He limits his knowledge intentionally so that he doesn't know the future. Uh, and he says... I don't know the future like you. Let's experience it together. Uh, And it's somehow trying to paint God as compassionate whenever bad things happen uh, so that you can just say, well, I can't blame God because he didn't know what was going to happen anyway. They teach that when he limits himself that the future is a mystery to him. This is not true. This is not who God is. This is a false teaching and you should run away from anyone that ever says that. Um, the application, though, for this, that we look, when we're looking at verse 11, is this. There's an unrest that's happening in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. He needs to know. He needs to know. Um, he demands to know. St. Augustine says this famously. He said, the human heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. The human heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. You, you can... Experience that yourself, or you know people that have experienced that. Whenever they're wandering around from 
thing to thing, whether it be a moral thing to a moral thing or power struggle to power struggle or life experience to life experience, until someone finds their rest in God, they're totally unrestful. They need to know uh, what is it that's going to fill this desire I have. And then they get it and they're like, okay, that wasn't good enough. What else can I do? Can you turn the house lights up a little bit brighter? Um, uh, they, they go from thing to thing. And what's ultimately true is that the human heart the human heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has unrest, and it's resulting in anger, it's resulting in threats, it's resulting in murder, and his insecurity and his unrest is causing him to set earthly goals that will temporarily satisfy this raging, lustful heart that he has. More power. Take over. Um, what does unrest do to you? What does it do to your heart? What does the raging, lustful heart, whenever you have unrest, cause you to do? He lived, Nebuchadnezzar lived, exclusively for this world. Uh, the, the horizons of, of his desires or his ambitions always changed from whatever was going on in the world. Never any further than that. And our hearts can do the same thing. It can cause us to seek security in this world rather than in God. It can cause us to f- try to find satisfaction in things created rather than the creator. And once we have it, we realize this is actually totally fleeting. Your heart will always be um, unrestful until it finds God. And so as you're seeking rest, the only thing that you can find them in is God. Not possessions, not power, not reputation, not anything immoral, etc. Only in God. And Nebuchadnezzar did not have peace. He desired peace and he needed to know it. He was demanding it. And the only one that could offer it is the Lord. The only one who's the omniscient one can do it. But as Ephesians 2.14 says, he himself speaking of Christ, is our peace. As we read in the Christ hymn, Colossians 1:19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and heaven by making peace by the blood of his cross. The only peace that can be found in our unrest is in Christ. Just as we look back to the cross to find our peace because of Christ died, those, those before the cross look forward to the coming Messiah Everybody saved the same way. Whether, whatever t- part you're on the timeline, you look to the cross. The cross is where we find our peace. And so the omniscient living stone offers peace to everyone at the cross. The omniscient living stone who, who knows everything, he offers us peace and rest at the cross. And so the first thing I want you to see is he is the omniscient one. But he is the one that offers rest. You're demanding to know? Go to the word. See Christ. Peace is offered at Jesus. What's going to happen in the, in the story here? Well, here's what's going to happen. Go to verse 14. So uh, everybody's about to get killed. They're going to go let Daniel know. Daniel, you're going to die today. Because uh, no one can answer the king. Verse 14. Daniel... Uh, replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. Arioch is the, the captain of the king's guard. He's the uh, executioner. He's the executioner in chief. Uh, hold up, Arioch. Wait, 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 wait. I got an idea. <laughs> maybe, I can, maybe I can tell him his dream and interpretation. And then no one dies. So verse 14 to 24 is our next section. Daniel said to, replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Uh, And Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Uh, 
it just breezes through the area rather quickly. Daniel, the writer, breezes through this rather quickly. Like the conversation between him and Arioch, the, the relationship and how it got fostered with Arioch, we assume it's very similar to Ashpenaz in, verse, in ch- chapter 1. How does Daniel have all these good relationships? How does he get a good request with the king? Breeze through all that. The real estate of that interests the writer none because he wants to get to the good stuff, which is the prayer. Like more important is the prayer in the writer's mind. Writer is key, right? What is the writer doing? Let's find out. So he breezes through all that stuff. And Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Ezra, and his companions. This is if you grew up, you know, Rat, Shack, and Benny, if you watched uh, uh, VeggieTales, to the other four. He, he lets them know. He's like, hey, got a prayer request. You're going to get killed. Let's all pray that we don't. Uh, and so he told them to seek mercy from God, as it says in verse 18. They have, a prayer, they have a prayer meeting. He told them to seek mercy from God and of heaven concerning this mystery. So they do pray right there. That little phrase in verse 18 lets us know they have the prayer meeting so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. Um, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So we, they pray. and Don't miss anything. And what does Daniel do? goes to sleep. He goes to sleep. God answers it. It's, it's just a good thing for you to rest in the sovereignty of God. You, you trust the Lord. I can't do anything here. I'm going to pray. I'm going to put it all in your hands, and I'm going to sleep like a Calvinist. All right. Look what he says here. Then the mystery was revealed to him in a vision of the night. Then Daniel, what does he do? Like, okay, he gets the answer. Run to Arioch so I don't have to die. Run to Nebuchadnezzar so he doesn't kill me. No, 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 no. I'll do that later. I'm going to pray. I'm going to praise the Lord here. He gave me the answer. I'm going to return thanksgiving to the Lord for giving me the answer. Gave it to him in the vision night. Then Daniel blessed the Lord God of heaven saying. Now we got some context for what this prayer is. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To whom belong wisdom and might. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Nebuchadnezzar was put there by God. Every ruler has been placed by the Lord in all times. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and now have made known to me what we... Uh, what we have asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. He understands the dream and he understands the interpretation completely. Um, therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, uh, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. All right, that's section two. And what we're seeing here, again, juxtaposing Nebuchadnezzar versus God, the living stone, Jesus. We have Nebuchadnezzar, massively unworthy, and then we have, in the prayer, what we see is the living stone is worthy. He's unworthy. Nebuchadnezzar is unworthy because he doesn't know anything. God did not deem him worthy. He deemed Daniel worthy. But ultimately, it's God who's worthy. And so, as we see, not much stuff given to us. Uh, but what does Daniel do? Um, but he goes to his friends and says, we need to pray. We need to have this prayer meeting. And so, we have this bold man knowing where he's going to find his strength. I need to have the answer. The only way I can do it is go to the Lord. The Lord is my only hope. I'm going in prayer. You want strength for your life. If I want strength in my life and you want strength for your life, the best thing for us to do is have callous knees. 
go before the Lord in prayer often and then go to sleep trusting that he's going to protect you. It'd be awesome for us to trust the Lord like Daniel trusted. And so the the mystery was revealed. And so his impulse was to praise God, not to run out. As Calvin says, whenever God confers any remarkable blessings on his servants, they are more stirred up than to praise him. Whenever the Lord does something amazing in your life, it should cause you to want to praise him. And then we have the loaded theological statement, which is the entire prayer in 22-23. And I'll I'll run through it quickly so that you can see the, the seven things about God in that prayer. He is to be blessed. He is to be blessed. So you can, number A, there we go. He is to be blessed. Blessed be the God forever and ever. God is to be blessed. Whatever's going on in your life, when he does any work whatsoever, or even if he doesn't, He's to be blessed. God forever and ever. He's eternal. He is eternal. He's not everlasting. He, had, he has no beginning point and lives forever. We're everlasting. We had a starting point and we live forever. He's eternal. He goes forever, both ways. Turn to past, eternal future. Not only that, he's omnipotent, which we've already said, where he says he changes the times and seasons. Only someone all-powerful can do that. He's blessed. He's eternal. He's omnipotent. He's also sovereign over all nations. When he removes kings and sets up kings, that means he's sovereign over all nations. There's not one country or nation that does anything without him saying, okay. He's sovereign over all nations. He's also beneficent. He's also beneficent. He gives wisdom to the wise. That means he's he's benevolent. He's somebody that gives things. He has stuff and he doesn't just keep the stuff. He gives it away. He's beneficent. Unbelievably. More so than we could ever, ever dream to be, right? He's also worthy of all praise. You see in verse 23. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. I give thanks and praise. And then don't miss this little thing where it says, you have given me wisdom and might. Daniel prayed and he was wondering, is God going to answer? And God was faithful. God was faithful. So he's faithful. He's to be blessed. He's eternal. He's omnipotent. He's sovereign over all nations. He's beneficent. He's worthy of all praise. He's faithful. That's just the seven in the prayer. Like if we expanded it out to the whole chapter, the whole book, the whole Bible, we would make a list that's literally unending of all the attributes of God. But here we're going to see these. And um, perhaps the greatest application that you can make when you look at these, this particular thing is just to know to praise God in all circumstances. Whatever happens in your life, good or bad, praise God. That's the application. Determine that I'm going to praise God and hear these things about how, how, how he's adored and then want to put these things in my life. Praise God. He's to be blessed because there's no one like him. He's to be blessed because he's eternal and he's God. He's to be blessed because he's all-powerful. He's to be blessed because no one ever, um, ever can take power away from him unless God gives, puts them in power of some sorts. He's to be blessed because he's graciously giving in kind. He's to be blessed because he's the only one who's worthy to be praised. He's to be blessed because he's faithful. No one is as faithful to us as God. And so think on these things right now in your life and how you relate to God through these things. And make these particular seven things an ever-increasing part of your prayers. 
We should be seeking, First Thessalonians 5.18, pray continually. Like there's not a moment where you shouldn't be praying at all times. Uh, weaving in and out of prayer as you do life. Weave these particular things in your prayer life. Let them be uh, a part of your ever uh, ongoing prayer life. And then let them affect the way you live. Whenever you think about the fact that God is to be blessed, live that way. Like live to bless the Lord. When you think about the fact that God is eternal or omnipotent, live like that. Don't try to usurp power from the Lord. Let him be all-powerful. Whenever you think about the fact that he's faithful or worthy of praise or beneficent, live like that. Don't try to be the one that makes the things happen. Let the Lord do it. So when we put this beside each other, we have uh, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is unworthy. We see the Lord, the living stone, is worthy. Let's pattern and shape our lives to remember that Jesus Christ is worthy of all praise. That he's the one that's worthy of our lives. All right. That was what we see about God in 14 through 24. Now we get to 25. So Daniel uh, is like, let me, see, let me see the king. I want to talk to him. So the next little section is 25 through 30. Arioch, this is the chief executioner, verse 25. Arioch brought Daniel before the king in haste uh, and, thus, and said thus to him, I have found among the ansiles of Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And the king answered, and Daniel answered to the king, uh, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Theological statement. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he, your dreams and visions of, uh, in, in your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries may know to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I, uh, that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So, yes, I know it. And the reason why I know it is not because I'm anything special. I'm just a dude like everybody else. And no one would know it. It's because God knows it. And he told me. Um, so, as we juxtapose these two here, uh, Nebuchadnezzar knows nothing. God's the mystery revealer. The mystery is revealed because of God. Look at verse 28. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he is made known to King Nebuchadnezzar. The only reason you know anything and you don't even understand it is because there's a mystery revealer. So Dale Ralph Davis, he's a commentator, looking at this particular section, uh, he says, by and large, Men and women today stand on pagan ground. They have no sure light on the future, no idea where human life and history are heading. This is what's going on with, with, what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't understand what's going to happen in his kingdom. He doesn't understand where he's going. Perhaps you can actually, you know, relate to that. We don't know what's going on in human history in our own lives or much less in, around us. And because of that, uh, we can live in fear. But the truth is, that we have God who understands all things. He's the mystery revealer and the most important things he has revealed to us about what's going on in life. Uh, 
as he, as he says in verse 27, Daniel, uh, no wise man can show the mystery. Uh, Daniel rightly acknowledges that man is massively limited in knowledge. And if man's going to know anything at all, it's only because God graciously reveals it to him. And so we have to see here that uh, in verse 28, the, the little parenthetical like blocks are the, the theological statements. Uh, as we see here in 28, there is a God in heaven and he does reveal mysteries. Christ is not only the mystery revealer, but he is the mystery revealed. Jesus Christ is the mystery revealed. And so we must notice that first, let's make sure we, we see this. Daniel takes no credit for himself. He gives all the credit to God and he lets Nebuchadnezzar know, um, I know you're not going to kill me when I tell you, but don't think that I'm great. Uh, God's great. Don't give me any of the credit. Uh, we need people, obviously, that are more like this, that point people to God and not to their own greatness. Um, but he tells him, there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery. And this mystery, which we're going to see in the next section, is going to be uh, explained. But before we get to that, let's just kind of bask in the glorious truth that God reveals mysteries. God reveals mysteries. And he has revealed to us the most important mystery that's been hidden, as it says in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9. It says it's been hidden, a mystery that's been hidden for ages in God. And what is this mystery? Well, Ephesians 3, the greatest mystery that's been, that was hidden and then revealed has been given to us. It says this, Ephesians 3, starting in verse 7, the greatest mystery ever revealed by God. Not this dream. Way better. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, this is Paul speaking, um, Though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom might be known, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. The mystery, the greatest mystery ever revealed is Jesus Christ dying for sinners, saving the lost, displaying his glory specifically through the church, those whom he has saved, and then being now this mystery being made uh, clearly shown to all the world through the church as we walk through life saying, Christ died for me on the cross and saved me. You can be saved too. You, you don't have to have a heart that's living in unrest. Instead, you can be saved by trusting in Christ and his finished work on the cross. So believe in Jesus. You and I, we're, all, we're, we're filthy sinners and we need to be forgiven. And so we put all of our hope, all of our trust in Christ. He is the mystery revealer. And so we stand here in this church as either one or the other. One who doesn't understand the mystery and on a pathway towards hell. Or one the mystery has been revealed and we understand who Christ is. And when we've understood it, we say, yes, save me. I believe Christ died for me and now I can be forgiven of all my sin, declared righteous before God, and stand before him forever. Not because of me, but because of what he's done. That's the dividing line here. We either don't understand the mystery or we do. And there's no other 
person in this room. It's one or the other. But he is the mystery revealer. And so if you're feeling an impulse or a tug right now that says, well, yes, uh, that sounds like something I need to, I need to understand the son that he loves. You're, you're moving from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son that he loves. So believe right now. What's going to happen? All right. Here's what's going to happen. Verse 31, Daniel's going to start giving the dream and the interpretation. Remember, he, he demands both dream and interpretation. So he's going to tell him the dream in 31 through 35, and then he's going to give him the interpretation in 36 through 45. So that's what we're going to look at. So here's the dream. All right, king, you saw a great image. Picture like a statue. Picture a big statue of a man. This, that's what you saw. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the statue, head of this image, was of fine gold. But its chest and arms were made of silver, and the middle and his, bron- and his uh, thighs were made of bronze. His legs were made of iron, and his feet were made of iron and of clay. Uh, as of feet and iron and clay, and, and it broke into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like the chaff of, or shaft, or however you pronounce that, of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away. So you have this big statue, but then it's just broken to tons of pieces, so fine that the summer breeze could just blow them away like there's nothing going on. All right, well, that's, that's pretty, it's pretty intimidating. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that stuck, struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So you have this kind of rock that comes in, hits the feet, destroys it. They all fall. They all break into pieces. They all blow away. And this stone that did it grows into this huge mountain. And there it is. That's your dream. And it scared you. You couldn't sleep anymore. And he's like, okay, that was it. So that's the dream. Um, But what's going on here? First, let's just make sure that we understand. um, Obviously, the stone, I've already tipped my hand here. The stone's Jesus. And so the stone is Jesus, and it breaks it into pieces, as it says in verse 35. Uh, broken into pieces, it became like the shaft of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried it away. Um, anyone, anything, any ideology whatsoever that stands before Jesus will be destroyed, false, false person, false ideology that stands before Jesus will be broken into pieces and will become like the shaft of the threshing, threshing floor. Nothing stands before our God. He alone stands forever, Right? Um, as Psalm 1, 4, 6 through says, the wicked are not so, but they're like the shaft that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's what Psalm 1 is talking about, Daniel 2. That's the way that all these things will go. All right, so you're wondering, all right, so what is the statue? What does that mean? So He's going to give us the interpretation as we get to the next section. To verse 36 uh, down is the, is the interpretation. This was the dream, and now we'll give the interpretation. So 31 through 35 was the dream. Now here's the interpretation starting at verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and to whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, so reference Genesis 1. He's looking at Nebuchadnezzar and he goes, you are the head of gold. You're looking at this statue. You, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, you represent the head. 
And so, meaning, and this is just, let me make sure I understand, you're with me. This is kind of, uh, and most commentators, there's, there's variance, but in most commentators, the general understanding of this dream is what I'm going to say here, all right? So he's looking at him, because most of it's in the text, and there's a little bit, little bit of like, it's got to be, for following history, we know what happened. So you're the head, meaning Babylon, the head of this is uh, the head of the statue of gold. And we know that that's about 65 years. We know that that represents 65 years. So you're the head. All right, we're in verse 38. Uh, really, but after you. So he's just kind of like, but after you, you don't last very long, Nebuchadnezzar. Just so you know, you're basically like, you know, nothing. After you, uh, another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. We'll stop there because when we look at the dream, we know that that's the chest and arms, uh, the silver. And so you're the head, Babylon, that lasts for 65 years. But after you, we have the chest and arms, which is the silver. So if we move down from gold to silver, we know that the Medo-Persian empire, we, we referenced it last week in chapter 1, verses 21, where Cyrus of Persia comes in, and they're always kind of connected to this Medo-Persian empire. They come after that, and it happens in Daniel 5. Uh, it even happens. Um, so the silver is represented by the Medo-Persian empire and the chest and arms. That would last about 200 years. And so basically what the statue is doing, therefore, is as it goes down, it's representing empires that come and take over. All right, so Babylon's the head. Then we have the chest and arms, which is the Medo-Persian empire that comes next. And then it says uh, in verse, after you is in yet a third kingdom of bronze. And we know, looking at the dream, that that's the, the middle and thighs. All right, so that's the from history, we know that ancient Greece came in and took over after the Medo-Persian Empire. So after the Medo-Persian Empire had their 200 years, the third kingdom after them was the ancient Greece Empire that comes in uh, in power. Alexander the Great conquered the world and died at 33. Uh, he's the one that defeated the Medo-Persian Empire and it's represented by the middle thighs. Uh, it'd be about 185 years that, that they would be in power, the ancient Greece and then after that, you can see another bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And then, verse 40, there should be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And so, most commentators say that when you get to the legs of the statue, the fourth kingdom, strong as iron, is the ancient Rome, one of history's greatest empires, uh, because it's strong and it defeats ancient Greece, that this ancient Roman empire represents the legs, and it would be about... The, depending on historians, maybe even 1,500 years, depending on what you think from, you know, like 300 BC into how long did Rome go? <laughs> you know, 1,200, 1,500, who knows? Um, uh, historians vary. Uh, now, when you get into the next section about the feet, this is where everybody's just like, okay, we don't know. But we do know there's feet, and we knew that it's made out of iron and clay. Clay? That's not so strong. You're right. It's not. Um, so, Verse 40, and there should be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. Like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush these things. And then, as you saw, the feet and toes, so when you get down to the very bottom, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. All of a sudden, it's not strong anymore uh, because it's going to be, as it says in verse 41, a divided kingdom. It's a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw mixed with the soft clay, which makes it kind of strong, but not kind of strong. And it tells us why. 
here, as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so shall the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so there will be a mix of another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. All right, stop. So I got a graphic for you. If I Googled it, Daniel 2 statue, and boom, here you go. So if you're wondering what that looks like, this is kind of what it looks like. Um, this was the best one I found on the Google. Uh, you have the head of gold of Babylon. You have the silver arms of the pedo merchant empire, uh, and then down and down, and then you have the kind of the brittle feet, right? And so you have the, the crushing rock or the stone because it's going to come in. Every empire from there all the way, they all bow down because when Jesus the stone comes in, he is the greatest empire of all. None of these things mean anything. That's, that's the basic gist of what he's trying to get to. And so here we have um, verse 44, the, the big theological statement. The God of heaven, don't miss this. So we have the, we have the context, and then he's going to blast them. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It doesn't, no one takes over after Jesus. No one can beat him. He's the stone that destroys everything. And it shall stand forever. Well, uh, it, it will break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that that stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. In other words, everything I've just said to you, Nebi, is going to happen. There's no doubt about it. It's going to happen. Now, uh, that's... That's the statue and its interpretation. Um, so we need to understand uh, some, some things, right? Just a few things to point out about the statue and then uh, what, what does it mean, right? Each successive empire is replaced with a stronger metal. So uh, silver apparently is stronger than gold. I don't know. Bronze is stronger than silver. Iron stronger. I know iron stronger. Uh, but each, until you get to the feet, right? Each thing's stronger as it goes down. So it's showing that it has greater strength than the successive empire. However, um, each successive empire is placed with a less expensive metal. Gold is the most expensive. And so as it goes down, though they're stronger, they're less glorious because they have a, 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 uh, not, a, not a great, I guess, metal as it's being there. So general decline, in other words, as they go down, it's just saying each empire declines even further in their morality. Look where we are now. We can say, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Uh, That's true. Uh, And so history, as it goes forward, is not getting better. It's getting worse. Now, ultimately, history will get better because we know the rock will come in and destroy them all. And when God sets up his kingdom, but um, Our hope is not in humans. Humans make history worse continually. God does not. Ralph Davis says it this way. This is is really good. Talking about history, uh, this ongoing history indicates to us a descent towards fragmentation. This is saying something important to contemporary readers about the pattern of human history. On the whole, history degenerates. It carries out its own germ of disintegration that becomes increasingly apparent. There then is no progress gene implanted into human history's womb that ensures some some sort of infallible upward movement. Some may complain this destroys optimism. It does. 
but our hope is not in humans, it's in God. And so we know in the very end, everything will get better, but human history will, of course, get worse. Only empty optimism, true optimism, comes from an indestructible kingdom, verse 44, the major theological statement. Not from a defunct but deified historical process. You can't write history with an uppercase H and think that will save anything. He's really good with words. Um, But the point is, uh, our hope is not in human progress because we know that it just gets worse. Instead, our hope is in God who as human morality declines, God comes and sets up the best kingdom ever. And so our hope is in God. It's crucial to remember as he goes on to say, when God's time come, his kingdom requires destruction of earthly kingdoms rather than working through them. They are God's will for now, but not forever. And when his moment arrives, his kingdom comes by catastrophe, not development. He destroys these kingdoms. And so the application then, therefore, if that's the truth, which it is, is don't be comfortable here. This isn't our home. This is not where we're supposed to be. Heaven is our home. The coming kingdom is where we're supposed to be. The people of God already belong to that kingdom that will be set up. And so we're since a part of that kingdom, which Hebrews 12 says, which cannot be shaken. Our hope is not in any of these kingdoms because we know that they're all going to fall. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom in other people. It shall break into pieces these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So the description of this stone kingdom is pretty brief compared to some of those other ones. Uh, It's pretty brief, but it tells us a lot of things. And everything about its kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is everything that those other kingdoms are not. Namely, it's indestructible. It shall never be destroyed. It's final. There's nothing else that happens after it. It's overwhelming. It breaks those pieces, those kingdoms into pieces, and it's supernatural. It's a stone that builds into a mountain, and it says it twice, not built by human hand. This is only a work of God. And so God's kingdom, compared to all the other kingdoms, is indestructible, final, overwhelming, and supernatural. This is Jesus' kingdom, indestructible. Dale Ralph Davis says this then. This solid assurance of the victory of God's kingdom is meant to bring a contagious certainty to the people of God. People so often squashed under the arrogant heels of earthly kingdoms and rulers. So if you're feeling oppressed, don't worry about it. Such an immovable dogma about the the coming kingdom puts iron in their intestines and nerve in their spirits as they walk through the disappointments of life and the reverses of history. They never totally despair because they know that Jesus Christ is not their only faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead, but he is the ruler of the king, kings of all the earth. This means that Jesus has a coffin for every emperor ever, and they're going to go in it. And the only true security that we have is in Jesus Christ, the living stone. He stand, go back to number, what are we at? Four. The living stone stands forever. Because his kingdom stands forever. Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to fall. And that's what the dream's telling him. And so our hope then, therefore, is in the living stones whose kingdom lives forever. Not in any kingdom of this world. It's not our home. Don't get too comfortable here, ever. 
So what happens? Well, verse 46. This is, this is amazing. All right, just, I know it's hard for us. We don't live that back then, but, but transport our minds 2,500 years ago in Babylon and just a wish that we could see King Nebuchadnezzar after this happens fall on his face and pay homage to a 16-year-old, a teenager. Verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, theological statement by a pagan, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors. You thought it was going to say high five, didn't you? No. High honors and many great gifts and made the ruler over the province of Babylon and chief uh, prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So he made it, put him over all the wise men. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. Like promote my buddies too. They prayed with me. Um, so here we see in the last one is... King Nebuchadnezzar on his face versus the living stone who is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. That's a pretty big juxtaposition. He fell on his face and paid homage. And this is, um, as he falls on his face towards Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar just doesn't understand. And so he falls on his face towards Daniel. But it is a remarkable image seeing Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who took over all things, uh, fall on his face towards a teenager. And let's be sure here, Nebuchadnezzar was awed, but not converted. He was in awe of this, but definitely not converted. And so we must caution our own hearts from this and watch just not for our own hearts, but for hearts of others, that they can have an experience of awe about God, but not be converted. And that's not what we want. We want true conversion. Faith and trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross for us, on our behalf, substituting himself by death for us, and this is not just a, wow, that's awesome, but instead an ongoing belief, an ongoing trust that Jesus saves and that he saves us and we believe and trust and all of our hope is in him. That's conversion, not just being in awe of God's work. And what happens uh, as Daniel does this is that he's honored with this position. And so the, the big statement that we see is truly your God is a God of God and a Lord of kings and a revealer of, of mysteries. As the famous theologian David Crowder says, there is no one like our God. There is. No, I won't do it. All right, so we have, he is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and we have Nebuchadnezzar falling on his face. And so here's the application for us. Since there's no one like the King of kings, Jesus Christ, there's no one like the Lord of lords. He is the God of gods, the Lord of kings. There's no one like him. Why would we ever Give our heart, our mind, our affections, our time, our devotion, our lives to anything else. Why would we substitute lower things for the king of kings? Why would we do that? We're so guilty of it all the time. Day by day as we walk through our life, thinking trivial things or sin seem better than Jesus. He's the king of kings the Lord of Lords. And so like Nebuchadnezzar, we should find ourselves paying homage on our face before the God of gods, living lives of worship for him. So how does Daniel 2 point us 
to Jesus. How does Daniel 2 point us to Jesus? Well, um, in Luke chapter 20, verse 17 and 18, I want you to see, uh, I want you to see this. This is pretty amazing. In Luke chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, he's doing a parable of the tenants, and he ends with this. He looks directly at them in verse 17, after he finishes the parable, and he says, what is written? And he quotes Psalm 118, 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, he's quoting Psalm 118, 22, but he's referencing Daniel too as the stone. Notice what he says in verse 18 and see if it sounds like the dream and the interpretation. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. The stone hit the feet, the, the statue fell on the stone, broken into pieces, blown out like the shaft of the summer winds. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on everyone, it will crush him. Jesus is the stone in Daniel 2. So how does it point us to? Massively easily, right? Since Christ is the stone that the world rejected, he is the stone that... So we see the stone in Christ, that he is the ever-exalted king over all kingdoms. How does it point us to Christ? Well, like us, chapter two, uh, chapter 2 begins with a death sentence to Daniel and his friends and ends with Daniel sitting at the right hand of the king. How does the Bible start? In Genesis 3, it begins with a death sentence. And how does it end in Revelation 5? With us sitting on the throne with the king. Not, we're not in charge. He is. But it points us to Jesus. The stone is Christ. He is the stone that will crush all other kingdoms. He's the rock on which he builds his church, as he says in Matthew 16, 18. Jesus will one day set up his absolute perfect monarchy, and it will be absolutely perfect in every way. David Helm says this, God took a conquered Hebrew prisoner of war and stood him confidently before the ruler. Wait, is he talking about Daniel or Jesus? Yes, he's talking about how Daniel prefigures Christ and foreshadows the coming of Christ. God took a conquered Hebrew prisoner of war and stood him confidently before the ruler of his own execution, a foretaste of what Jesus would do for us, except that not only faced it, but he endured the execution for us. God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. God is worthy. Jesus Christ is the mystery revealer. He stands alone forever, and he is the God of God and the Lord of kings. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you're so kind to us by giving it to us. Um, we thank you that all of this chapter points us to Jesus. And I pray that as we have um, thought on Christ and what he's done for us, that our hearts would be turned towards him and all of our affections and lives would be devoted to him. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.